last week we finished the first half of Romans 13, and the first half has to do with obedience to civil authorities. And one of the things that I said is Paul defines a right relationship with the civil authorities as doing good. And good is defined by Torah. Paul does not say that you must follow every statute that some jerk happens to get passed by a legislature. Furthermore, Paul is not saying that anybody who gets himself a government desk and a nameplate on the door is automatically to be obeyed in all things. That's not what we're saying here. What he's saying is, be a good person and you won't have trouble. If you are a bad person, as defined by Torah, you will have trouble and it's your own fault because not only are you disobeying the civil authorities, but you're also disobeying God. So the thing we said is if you decide not to obey the civil authorities in some law, statute, or decree that you think goes against Torah or exceeds their authority, because we have a written constitution, and governments periodically try to do things that exceed the authority that they've been given. But the point is, just because some government official says so, doesn't mean that God says you have to obey. Notice how I said those things very differently. If you choose to disobey the civil authorities because you either A, believe they've exceeded their authority, or they're telling you to do something immoral, you then may have a problem with the civil authorities. In other words, you may get arrested, you may get thrown into jail, you may have all your property seized. All of that kind of stuff may happen to you. That's an exercise of power. But understand that in that process, you are not going against the word of God, and you're not violating Romans 13. And as I say, much of the Sunday church reads Romans 13 as anybody who sits in a government office behind a desk must be obeyed. Because if you don't, you are going against God. That is nonsense. That is not true. So we're now in Romans 13.8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Completely agree with that. However, that is again a source of tremendous mischief. Now, first off, Stealing, committing adultery, etc., are all defined by Moses as sins. So he doesn't go off and invent some cockamamie new sin that only applies to the New Testament. He's listing things that Moses also says don't do. The problem that we have is many people read that and they say, all I have to do is love, and they don't read the list that goes with it, which is Torah. How many people have you heard, well, God knows my heart, or words to that effect? Yeah, he does, and he's disgusted, because your heart is desperately wicked. He keeps saying so in the scriptures. The point is, lots of people treat this as a gooey, amorphous thing that is fulfilled simply because 
you have got good feelings in your tummy towards your neighbor. That's not what it's saying. The thing about the Torah that is important is what the Torah does is gives you specifics of what it means to love your neighbor. You don't steal his sheep. You don't lie about it. You don't covet his stuff. You don't do things accidentally that may cause him harm. There's all sorts of very specific things in the Torah, and those are all wrapped up in love your neighbor. And the problem is many people don't study the specifics, so they will do things that the Torah says not to do, but they'll do it with a gooey feeling in their stomach, and they will think that they are obeying Romans 13. Many people are of the opinion that if you can convince yourself that you love God and you love your neighbor, then all of the details in the Torah don't apply. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying here is he's listing some specifics out of the Torah as poster children, if you will, and he's saying, if you love God and you love your neighbor, you are doing that stuff. In other words, you're not murdering, you're not stealing, you're not committing adultery, you're not coveting. So there's nothing here that abrogates anything in Moses. It's probably important that we make the distinction between Moses and the rabbis because rabbinic Judaism is in many respects not following Moses. The way I would describe it is just as many Sunday churches think that this gooey feeling of love absolves them from the Torah, many Jewish churches say, oh, I'm studying Torah, when what they're really studying is Talmud, which in many cases contradicts Torah. Yeshua himself said so. You know, he said, hey, guys, you've got stuff in your traditions, and you regard that as equivalent to Scripture, but in that process, what you have done is you have nullified the Word of God. So don't get me wrong. I like the rabbis. I study the rabbis. When their teachings are good, I will use their teachings. But they are not, in many cases, strictly following Moses. So what Paul is doing is talking about Moses here. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Yeshua Messiah and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Sexual immorality, all those kinds of things are contrary to Moses. So Paul writes this as every preacher for the last 2,000 years has written it, Yeshua could be back any day. You could wake up one morning and find him standing at the foot of your bed. The words to that effect. So what he's doing is he's saying, you really don't have a lot of time to clean up your act. Because what we do, I do, I don't know about you guys, but I, when I know that I have a lot of time to get my act together, delay getting it together. It's sort of like when you had a term paper due in school. And they gave you the term paper in February, but it's not due until the end of May. When do you think it gets written? 
one or two days before it's due. You have used all of the time up between the time it was assigned and the time it was due doing other stuff that you were more interested in. And Paul is making that same point here. Don't assume that it's going to be 2,000 years. Assume that things are going to happen rapidly and you best be ready. So don't use the time in works of the flesh. Instead, use the time in works of the spirit. All right, now we come to food. I will start right off and say I have no idea what he's talking about here. I've got some ideas, but I do not have, thus saith the Lord. I'll give you my thoughts. The first thing to understand, remember we started this thing off by saying he's writing a letter to a mixed church. So you've got in there Gentiles who have the Holy Spirit and want to be in the synagogue so they can read the books. You've got in there just standard, old, plain, garden variety, curly-cued Jews who don't believe in Yeshua. They're just following as best they can the law of Moses. And you've got proselytes who are Gentiles who are in the process of becoming Jews. And then finally you have Messianic Jews like Paul who are ethnic Jews but have come to a belief in Messiah. So those are your four groups. And one of the things that we have seen throughout this letter is there seems to be conflict among them. The Gentiles come waltzing in there and say, I've got the Holy Spirit. What's wrong with you guys? How come you don't have the Holy Spirit? I'm better than you are. And of course the Jews say, yeah, come tell me about a bacon breath. So you have this conflict that's going on within the synagogue. A flashpoint in human existence is food. I was talking to my next door neighbor this afternoon. His wife is a vegetarian. He is not. Of course, we're not. And if you want to know a vegetarian, just wait about two minutes and they'll tell you. And they'll tell you why you're wrong for not being one. I mean, some of them are more subtle than that, but they are, as a group, not everyone, but as a group, they are kind of militant about it. I'm a vegetarian because I'm against cruelty. Oh, you're not a vegetarian? You must be a cruel person. I mean, that's the implied catechism there. You go to a Baptist picnic, and you say, uh, Sorry, I'm not going to eat the Rice Krispie treats because they're made with pork gelatin and I'm not going to have a ham sandwich and I'm certainly not going to have any of the shrimp. Don't you know that Jesus gave you permission to eat all that stuff? How come you want to be a Judaizer and a legalist? Paul and Peter, when they are in Ephesus and folks from the home office come down, Peter has been eating with Gentiles, and all of a sudden, when folks from the home office come down, Peter separates himself, and Paul upbraids him about it. So food is a big deal. That's thing one. And of course, thing two is the way we got into this mess is by eating the wrong thing in the garden. So God does care what we eat. As I say, the very first vignette in Scripture is, don't eat that, oh, What have you done? Did you eat that of which I told you not to? 
And the next thing we know, we've got flaming swords behind us and we're out in the wilderness. So food's a big deal. I don't know what the specific problem is here, but it's very clear that it's a problem that involves meat, flesh, animal products. The other place where Paul talks about this is in 1 Corinthians 8. Same preacher, same subject. And what I'm going to suggest is there may be something going on that's similar in the two churches. But that's a guess. So let's read Romans in 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. All right, so first thing we've got to understand, I am told, I have not met many of them, so I am just told this, but I think it's correct, that if you were to manage to get an Orthodox Jew to come into your home for supper, the only thing he would eat would be salad and vegetables. He wouldn't eat meat. For one thing, you don't have two sets of dishes to separate milk and meat. I mean, just all sorts of rules. I can remember when we had Shavuot up at Lake Loveland one time, and Avi Lipkin was a speaker. And Avi had stopped off at the East Side Kosher Deli before he came up to Loveland and had bought himself a pastrami sandwich for lunch. And I said, you're certainly welcome to have lamb with us. I killed it. I bled it, it's clean, no, no, sorry, thank you. I'll have my pastrami sandwich. So the fact is, when we kill lambs, we do it in a biblically correct way. When they process a lamb, what they do is they take it apart and strip the veins out and a bunch of other things, which is called trabering. And if it isn't done by somebody who knows what he is doing, a Jew will not eat it. So Muslims will eat kosher meat, but Jews will not eat halal meat. Again, it's a big deal. So here, this one that eats only vegetables, I am assuming these are not vegetarians. What I'm assuming is these are Orthodox Jews who are not going to eat the meat that is purchased in the market or prepared by a Gentile. We're not talking about bacon here although that may be in play, but that's not necessarily what's going on. To have a meal together in the synagogue on Shabbat, an Orthodox Jew, unless he or someone he trusts has prepared the meat, will not eat it. He'll eat only vegetables. So I am inferring that that's the situation Paul is talking about. I don't think he's talking about militant vegans. He's talking about Believing Jews who will not share tables fellowship with Gentiles, even though they have lamb, even though they have goat, even though they have cow, because somebody he trusts was not involved in the slaughter and preparation. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians, and that'll give us some context, and then we'll come back, and perhaps we can make an inference about Romans from 1 Corinthians. So I'm in 1 Corinthians 8. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Remember, we're talking about love one another. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, specifically eating food offered to idols, and the word there is food, and we'll come back and talk about that in just a minute. So as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Messiah Yeshua, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Not all possess this knowledge. In other words, they are not all Christians. You've got Jews, too, floating around here. They don't see Yeshua in the same light. They don't see Yeshua as having conquered all of the so-called idols. Because specifically in Torah, it says, do not eat food offered to idols. That's Moses. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Notice we have a weak conscience, and back in Romans we have a weak person. So their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And you all have been through this a number of times. And so the idea is the meat that was offered to idols would show up in the butcher shop later on that day. Paul is talking about food. I'm going to make a leap here. He's writing in Greek and he's writing to Gentiles in Corinth. But Moses specifically says, this shall be food for you. And then he lists the things that we're allowed to eat. Basically, if it chews the cud and splits the hoof, and it's on four legs, we can eat it. Certain birds we can eat, certain insects we can eat. A whole bunch of things, to include bats, interestingly enough, we are not to eat. So Moses says, anything that is not on this list is not food. So when Yeshua, for example, is going through the field and they're plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath and, and they're eating them, and Yeshua talks about being Lord of the Sabbath, it says, thus he declared all foods clean. So what he basically said is food, as described in the Torah, is clean. And there are a whole bunch of things that the Pharisees had added on to the process of preparing and consuming food that would make you unclean, but Yeshua said, no, 
none of that's going to make you unclean. I am suggesting to you Paul is saying much the same thing here, but we don't know that for sure. And certainly we're reading somebody else's mail, and I don't know that the Gentiles in Corinth said, whoo-hoo, bacon double cheeseburgers, here we come. I just don't know. Back now to Romans. So what I am inferring when you have one person who eats and another person who only eat vegetables, I think we're talking about two things. Meat offered to idols, and when I say that, I'm not talking about pigs offered to idols. I'm talking about sheep, goats, and cattle offered to idols, which are okay to eat, assuming that they're properly prepared. An Orthodox Jew would not eat those unless it were prepared by a halakhically certified slaughterer, soket, and unless it were properly prepared, regardless of whether it is prime beef and is otherwise clean. In that, they go beyond Moses. So in going beyond Moses, I am going to suggest that may be what Paul means by the weak brother. In other words, he's picked up stuff from rabbinic Judaism that goes beyond what Moses requires and so is wrong is the wrong word, but you're not going to convince him. So don't look down on him for following the rabbinic stringency and similarly, he shouldn't look down upon you for eating sheep, goats, and cattle that show up in the market. And in another place, Paul will say, if somebody offers you food, you are not required for conscience sake to ask if it was ever offered to an idol. You're just not required to go into the pedigree of the animal. As long as it's beef, lamb, goat, chicken, doves, pigeons, whatever, as long as it's any of that, fins and scales, go ahead and enjoy it. You're not required to go into its pedigree. An Orthodox Jew would feel required to go into its pedigree. I think that's what's being talked about here. And that's just bouncing Romans 14 against 1 Corinthians 8. Romans 14 is not as clear as 1 Corinthians 8. So I'm extrapolating from 1 Corinthians 8 onto 14. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Messiah died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both, of the dead and of the living. I don't know what esteeming one day better than the I have no idea what that means. Although I will tell you, I can see where the Sunday folks would use that as justification for rolling your own Shabbat. I was listening to Ron Dart sometime last week don't remember when, and he was talking about the Sabbath. And of course, you all have been through Torah a number of times, 
and you have a feeling for the importance that God puts on Shabbat to the extent that when his people don't do it, that's one of the factors that gets them sent into exile. Didn't give the land its Sabbaths. Shabbat is a big deal, and it still is as far as I'm concerned, and it certainly still is as far as the Jews are concerned. All of the church at this time was almost exclusively Jewish. If God had wanted to change the Sabbath after the resurrection, he would have said so. And he would have said so directly and clearly, just like he says directly and clearly in the Torah, observe my Shabbat. Shabbat is the seventh day. Remember the Shabbat. Guard the Shabbat. Shabbat's a big deal. He is not subtle at all in the Old Testament about Shabbat. It is God's Shabbat. God's the one that rested, and we get to join him. As big a deal, then, as Shabbat is and was to the early church, which was all Jewish, it is inconceivable that God would have changed the day in some sort of an obscure little reference about, oh, we held a meeting on the first day of the week. It's such a big deal that if there was a change that had been made and authorized, God would have said through Yeshua, I am changing the Sabbath. I just got raised from the dead on the day after Shabbat, which is the first day of the weeks, the first day of counting the Omer. And because of that, and because I have saved the whole world by my resurrection, the first day of the week is now the Sabbath. If Yeshua had stood up and said that, I'd be right there. He never did. Paul never does. Peter never does. Nobody ever changes the Sabbath. There's no record in the Bible, New Testament, of God through Yeshua, through Paul, through Peter, through John, through Mark, through Matthew, anybody saying, we're changing up the week. The first day is now the set. It never happens. So to sort of take some obscure reference and say, well, clearly, I mean, that becomes the Sabbath, is erroneous. When it says in verse 5 of Romans 14, one person esteems one day as better than the other, I have no idea what he's talking about. I can think of other things, because I believe it's in Colossians, where you have people coming out of paganism. And pagans have holidays just like the Jews have holidays. And so what he's talking about there is don't let anybody get on your case about observing God's appointed times as opposed to observing the pagan appointed times that you have just come out of. So the idea that there are other holidays, Rome had holidays, pagans had holidays, there were festival days, all sorts of days get marked by both different cultures and different religions. Sabbath is nowhere mentioned in this paragraph. So to take from that that Sabbath has been changed is, I believe, a gross error because it could be Saturnalia. It could be Valentine's Day. It could be Lupercalia. There's all sorts of holidays out there. And I will give you another example. There is a very devout family that I know of that doesn't do Purim because it's not one of God's appointed times. 
We do Purim. Cool. You guys won't show up for Purim? God bless you. But also, don't condemn us for celebrating Purim. I can think of lots of examples here that are other than Shabbat. So, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. The whole point of all of this, by the way, is dissension among folks in the church. That's the subject of all of this. And we've got dissension over food. We've got dissension over what days do we mark. We've got dissension over circumcision. We've got dissension over all sorts of stuff. And Paul is talking about all of those in sequence. A comment was that if you have a mixed group like this, some people are going to be gung-ho, as we call them Torah terrorists, and other people are going to be a bit timid. But the whole point is you're trying to make one body. All sorts of doctrinal differences. And the point is don't split up over these minor, unimportant doctrinal differences. Figure out how to get along. Because one of the things that Yeshua says is, at the end, I am going to bring everything together. And that is everything. So you're all coming in. And I will circumcise your heart at the end of the day, and you'll all get it right. But until then, don't get too cocky about you having it right and somebody else having it wrong, because the only one that really gets to decide that in the end is Yeshua. So learn to live with each other is what Paul is saying. I agree. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So we've been talking about food. We've been talking about days of observance, all those kinds of things. And the idea is these people are putting stumbling blocks in front of each other. And he said, don't do that. 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Yeshua that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Messiah is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So the idea here is, if I were to show up on Shabbat with a wilted spinach salad with bacon grease and bacon crumbles on the top of it, Nobody would eat it, and rightly so. But what would happen then is I would be just all grumpy because nobody would eat my salad. And so I would probably leave. You guys have all given me the cold shoulder. Here I have brought you my famous wilted spinach salad, and you guys, nobody would eat it. I'm going to go find another church, or I'm going to leave the church altogether. And what Paul is saying is these kinds of disputes lead to that. They lead to people being frozen out, they lead to people quarreling with each other, and they lead to people 
going elsewhere for fellowship. As opposed to building up the body, we wind up with splintering the body. The other thing, by the way, Paul is on a roll about unity. There is a downside to this. The cry bully. In other words, oh, you're eating food sacrificed to idols. Oh, I can't stand it. Oh, you got to stop because you're making me really uncomfortable. So there are people who take this and use it as a method of control and power. And the point I'm making is Paul's emphasis here is on unity and not getting in each other's face about items of dispute. He's not talking here about what I call the cry bully who tries to control everybody by his weak and timid and easily wounded pride. Okay, that's not what he's talking about here. That is every bit as sinful as the other. It's just not the subject of this letter. So verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not proceed from faith is sin. So again, the idea is don't coerce your brother into violating his conscience. And that includes don't call your brother a stupid Judaizer or a bacon breath or whatever you want to call him to shame him into your perspective. Each of you do what you're going to do and live together in peace. That's what he's saying. You don't have to eat the bacon salad and you don't have to talk to him about the bacon salad. And on the other side of that, they don't have to eat your food sacrificed to idols or whatever. The idea here is unity and not causing your brother to stumble, not being a Torah terrorist. Although I don't know that Gentiles, at least at that stage, would have been Torah terrorists. They might have been. Torah terrorism is an old and honored tradition. (laughs) All right, so that's uh, chapter 14. We'll do 15 and 16 next time, God willing. That should go fairly quickly. And one of the things I will suggest is be thinking about what you would like to do next. Shabbat